This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I think it's probably fair to say that there's not much that you would want less in your life than to be told by a doctor that you have cancer. I, you know, I'm sure there are other things that are just as bad, but I, it would be right up there. And a report last month came out, it was around, I don't know, June 20, June 21, something like that, that said one in two Canadians can expect that at some point in their life, they will be dealing with some kind of cancer. That is staggering. That is, that's shocking. That's upsetting. That's a staggering number. That means that if you're sitting with someone in a room or in a car or wherever you are right now, by statistically speaking, one of the two of you will face cancer. Kind of makes this whole thing very, very real, very sobering numbers. And making all of this even more sobering and more hard to take is the fact that finding the correct treatment for your cancer when that time comes, if you get it, is not always easy. Which means as doctors are working to try and find something, time can be lost for your treatment. Well, there is, in all of this, there is some good news. It sounds like there's some good news. A research team at McMaster says it has now figured out, it's discovered why it is that some treatments for cancer will work on some people, but not on others. Why you may have a treatment that will work and the person lying next to you in another bed, that same treatment for the same cancer might not work. Meaning, I believe, and we're going to find out in just a second, doctors will not have to spend as much time using ineffective treatments. They can get right to the effective treatments right away to try and help you get better. Dr. Mick Badia is the principal investigator of this study and the scientific director of McMaster's Stem Cell and Cancer Research Institute. He's been a guest on this show before. We're delighted to have him back. Dr. Badia, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, no problem. Delighted to be on. Uh, when we talk, I uh, said off the top, when we talk about cancer, I, I would think that 99 point, I can't think of the exception, but 99.9% of the time, it is always a depressing conversation. This sounds like it might be the exception. This might be a bit of optimism in the middle of all that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're certainly optimistic um, on the level that, you know, there's a lot of drugs out there that people hear about, you know, all coming with very complicated names and, you know, uh, difficult to understand. But the drugs uh, that are out there, we're hoping are going to be fairly effective if we can just get the right drugs to the right person. And, you know, we haven't looked exhaustively on every drug that's out there, but we took a few examples and we found that um, by knowing a little bit more how they work and making sure the patients have those proteins expressed on that allows the drug to work, um, allows us to assign, you know, the drug to the patient and connect the dots much better. Um, so in principle, we think that this is a very uh, doable thing to um, deal with that unfortunate uh, number of, you know, one out of two people now in Canada. Before we get to what you've discovered, because it will take a few minutes to explain, I think. It is reasonably complicated, but I know you can explain it in human terms. Um, First of all, as much as we know, do we have any idea how many types of cancer there actually are out there? Oh, I I think there's definitely hundreds. I mean, you know, there's classifications based on you know, they, they take samples of blood or the tumor itself, and uh, what's called a pathologist, a very specific type of doctor, will look at it and say it has this type of cancer, this is how it's progressed, um, and those start to break down the different types. So it's not just the tissue where it comes from. You know, in the breast, there's multiple types. In the colon, there's multiple types. 
So as we learn more information to define cancers, we get more and more categories. Right. Okay, um, so we've, we've got yeah. hundreds of categories. Is there any yes. part of the body, is there any piece of our anatomy that is immune from cancer? Um, not many. There are not many types of tissue that, uh, that don't ever, ever get cancer. Um, it's really not the case. And I, and I, I think um, certainly in Canada and, and around the world, I think it's a general you know, as people live longer, we start to see more and more of these cancers come up. All right. And then thirdly, then, the third part of this equation, um, any idea how many different types of treatments there would be? How many different drugs are there that would deal with different types of cancer? Again, are we, would it be the same as the numbers of cancer? We're talking hundreds again? Uh, no, I, I, I definitely in the hundreds. But I think if you were to, you know, look at a ratio, you're probably looking at, uh, you know, probably half the number of types of regimes, I'll call them you know, drug regimes, um, there are for the cancer. So, so there's a lot, there's a lot, there certainly isn't, you know, a, a standard idea of how, um, to treat, uh, cancers, uh, after it relapses. That, that's really a big problem is we know how to treat it generally when it, when initially it's diagnosed. Unfortunately, many, many patients come back because it reoccurs. Um, anyone who's faced this knows what I'm talking about here. So we have, all these different types of cancers, we have a, many types of treatments, we've got every different body type. So m- my understanding would be that when someone does have a diagnosis, part of what is going on is the doctor has an educated guess based on his experience and his training and everything else of what might work, but there's still a trial and error process to some degree going on to see what is going to take effect. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, every drug, which is really just a chemical reacts differently in the body. I mean, it's not like taking, you know, a few cells in a Petri dish and exposing it. Your body has, you know, more than 100 different cell types. They've been exposed to different things. Uh, So the compound, the the drug, um, will have a different reaction and react differently with different cells for every individual. So really every, every treatment is really a case study of its own. But I think in general, there's a very good idea of the types of drugs that will you know, debulk, you know, get, re- reduce the tumor size, get rid of the burden of the cancer initially. And that's normally what's, what's targeted. The fact, though, that you have done this study would suggest that at least a reasonable number of treatments don't work right away or that there's some question about why certain treatments that might work in t- nine people doesn't work in person number 10. Do we have any idea what percentage it would be that you would look at and say, you know what, they need something different from the norm? Yeah, I mean, the, I think there are, there are probably an idea of the percentages. Uh, unfortunately, it, it differs depending on a lot of factors, one being the type of cancer. You know, is it a blood cancer? Is it a colon cancer? And then that has to be subdivided even further into, you know, are, is the person uh, above 60 years of age or under mm. 60 years of age? But, uh, but we now know, you know, a large percentage of patients, um, they do relapse, um, uh, meaning, meaning the cancer is treated, uh, the term remission is mm-hmm. used, uh, and unfortunately, the tumor comes back. Now, when it comes back uh, is is always something that why you do follow up treatments or checkups. Um, so, so we think that there might be a percentage of those patients. Um, at least our study demonstrates that um, that we could maybe look at a couple of proteins and try to connect that that patient with the right secondary drug, you know, to see if we can prevent it from ever coming back. Okay, so right before I get to you explaining what that all means, um, 
Do we know, first of all, and I think you touched on it, but do we know why certain drugs in a, in a person won't work? Is there, is, is, you mentioned proteins. Is that the thing? Why would some work and some not work? Well, you know, every drug, um, what it does, it's basically, you know, accessing or, or using the machinery that's part of the, the tumor cells to begin with. You know, if I have, if I, uh, if I try to fix a car, I have to know what part to aim at. And I'm going to come at it with different tools. So if you think of the tools as drugs and the parts of a car, you have to get the right tool and you have to make sure the right part is there. If for some reason, you know, you're, you're dealing with an electronic car that doesn't have that part, you can use that tool all you want. It was only built for that one part. But if that part's not there, your drug isn't going to be effective. And um, did so we know that? Is, did we know that ahead of time that this is what was happening? Well, or, Yeah, I mean, in, in, in most cases, the drugs that are given, it's believed, they're believed to work in a, a very specific way. And many of the times they do work that way. However, there's sometimes they work in other ways. There's some other other part of it involved. Um, and these are where, the, where this complexity comes in, Scott, which is this, you know, other proteins. It's never just one part. You know, you might want to fix the engine, but the question is, well, is it the cylinder? Is it the piston? You know, what element of that is really, how, how, is, how is it working? And that's something that we don't entirely know clearly. Um, and that's just a lack of knowledge. So your study, though, your research, I think it was four years, was it, that you've been working on this? Um, yeah, yeah, that's actually relatively short. <laughs> okay, but what did <laughs> you actually find then? What did you find that is going to help us to be able to make this better down the road or make doctors able to better know what chemicals, what drugs to use? Yeah, so I mean, so we know a couple of clear things about cancer, and that is it, the reason it's so bad is it grows. And for it to grow, it uses a couple of different pieces of machinery to make it grow. Just like if an engine is going to go forward, it's going to use... You know, the, 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 the pistons, it's going to use gas. So we know that to be true. So the idea was there's lots of drugs out there that try to shut down the engine of these cancer cells. The drugs that we were looking at were work very effectively in some people. On other people, they don't work effective at all. And we really didn't know why. So what we decided to do was really look at the, the patients and the cells that didn't respond, which is kind of, you know, Scott, is an unusual thing to do. Normally you look at what, what worked and you say, well, let's just build on what worked. We kind of did the opposite and said, well, we want to know why it didn't work. And by comparing the cells that respond and patients that respond versus ones that didn't, we actually started to know, notice key differences. And we found that the drug was actually working a little bit differently than people had thought, and meaning it only patients that had a particular protein did the drug work through. The patients were, or the cells that it, cells and patients that didn't work in was because they didn't have the protein expressed. So there was nothing for the drug to work on. So it kind of went in like water, didn't do anything. And that's why it was ineffective. So does this then, okay, so you identify then that, okay, these cells don't have the protein. So does that mean that down the road, as we break this down and say, okay, now we believe that you must have this protein, can we devise drugs that don't need the protein? Or is the next step to say, let's inject somehow those proteins with the drug to make it work to, to replace that that people don't have? There's, you know, those are all really, you know, Scott, those are really innovative possibilities. I think our immediate, um, so none of those are out of the question for sure. Our, our immediate um, response are really twofold. So 
one, what we want to do is make sure that the people that do have this protein are benefiting, right? So now that we know this protein is involved, what we'd like to do is start thinking about screening patients that are coming in and saying, well, if you have this protein for this particular type of cancer, then this is the right drug for you. Right. Don't waste time guessing on something. Right, exactly, because we have, a, we have a pretty, we have a much better guess, if you will, that this is going to be effective. I think the other benefit of that is, is that you don't have to then treat patients that are unlikely right. to not respond, because then they're wasting time. There could be another drug out there that might be very benefiting to them, and they haven't uh, had access to, or they haven't been treated with. And I can't imagine, so I think, talking to a lot of people that I know who have had cancer, none of the treatments are all that pleasant. So you don't want to be spending a lot of time dealing with them if they're not going to work anyway. No, definitely not. So for us, it's about using this protein as an example of how you can get the right drug to the right patients, knowing perfectly well that not all drugs work for everyone. But if you know why that is, you can start connecting the drug and the patient immediately. I think the second thing we're excited about is that we've only done this with a handful you know, of drugs, and we found this one protein. What we really are thinking is that what if this principle is consistent for other drugs and other types of cancers? Then we could expand it, hopefully, uh, maybe not to hundreds, but at least a few more cancers, um, and see whether this might be a better way of, again, in other types of cancers that are maybe more deadly, um, to connect the right drugs to the right patients. So, so this is an important um, mm-hmm. paradigm, if you will, for us to follow. And, you know, in order to establish this sort of principle, you have to show, it a, couple, show a couple of examples, which I think our study serves. What kind of cancers have you studied already? Like, what, what would be affected by this right now? If I go into hospital tomorrow with it, uh, and I say, hey, look at, look at Dr. Badia's study, what are the cancers that this has, been, that this has touched? So we've... In our study, we've, we've, we've tested uh, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, we've also tested some types of colon cancer and some types of breast cancer. And, you know, we, we use cells in a, in a laboratory as, as um, examples of how the patient cells would work. But we always use human cells. We don't use mouse cells or other species. We use actual patient cells. So this is what we've defined right now. What we, what we really want to do now um, is really see if this protein will be a really good predictor of response. And the only way to really test all of that is to do it in breast cancer patients, do it in colon cancer patients. So this is something we're trying to roll out um, right now, now that we've published this work. Just before I let you go, last thing. Uh, does this mean, let's say that you do a study on me, you, do, you screen me when I come in for a test, and you find out that I don't have those proteins that are going to make drug X work right for me, are there drugs out there that would still work, or are there some people who, because they're missing a protein, literally nothing exists right now, and it's kind of a hopeless thing? Well, you know, what we know is that a drug works through a protein, and so we can only look for the protein. So, so Scott, I, I guess we had to back to your question. We can only look for what we know. And so today, from our study, we know about this one protein called SAN68, so we can look for it. If, we, if it's not there it's difficult to predict what proteins might be there for some drug that we don't know. The, the knowledge base isn't there, so there's nothing to look for. Um, so this is why, you know, the, 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 the fundamental work is really important. So there's still, it sounds like we're, we're at the very beginning of this. Yeah, I, I, I think we are. I mean, I think we want to we move this, obviously, to see if this is, is clinically viable for, for colon cancer and breast, as well as additional types of leukemia. 
But I'd also, you know, like to see um, other drugs be investigated this way. I mean, drugs that are already in the market. So you don't need to go go and find a new drug. You just got to get the drugs that are out there to the right mm. people. Dr. Mick Badia from uh, McMaster's Stem Cell and Cancer Research Institute. Fascinating stuff. Really appreciate you taking time to spend with us tonight. Oh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It is, uh, as I said right off the top, what really is both remarkable and depressing all in the same time is that this study that came out earlier this summer that said one in two people. So if you're listening to that, and I don't want to be the grim reaper here. I mean, that's really not it. I'm not the one making these decisions, but half of the people listening, that may, that discussion, that study may actually matter to them personally at some point. That's, those numbers are just staggering when you think about it. You're, so half the, all of us really, but personally, half of the people in this audience, in this city, in this country, in this world should be hoping that Dr. Badia and his team and the lab and all the other people can keep going with this and find those answers. Cause man, oh man, if that day ever comes and I've talked to enough people who have had loved ones or themselves have gone through it, which apparently, and I can believe it is just the worst thing you could possibly hear when that doctor sits you down and tells you this, you at least want to believe that the treatments that are out there, that they know how to use them and that they know how to use them most effectively. Let's hope that this is a start because if it is, and if we can actually now save people having to go through stuff that doesn't work, but is just horrible to live through. And if we can not waste time while the cancer grows and the treatment isn't working and all these things, man, that sounds like it's a vast step forward for a horrible, horrible thing. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. There was a survey that was done by Workopolis, which is an online job finding site. And what it found, I think, I found to be kind of stunning. They did this survey of people who were looking for jobs and they found, they, they surveyed 7 million people who had used their site. Now, maybe it's not completely a fair cross-section because these are people who are looking for work, you would assume. They come onto the site, so... Maybe it skews it a little. Nonetheless, of those 7 million people, they use that across as a cross-section, 51% of people in this country, they argue, Workopolis argues, 51% stay in their job for two years or less. That's a staggering number. That's a lot of people that are transient in their employment. Only 30% of workers say that they have held the same job for more than four years. Now, why is that? Well, there's a bunch of different possibilities. You could have been laid off. Fair enough. You could have retired. Fair enough. You might have hated your job. Sure, of course. You might have been offered a better job. You might have moved up in the world. There's all these different possibilities of what could happen. But here's the thing. There is one thing that seems to be standing out among workers, according to this survey, that is important now to employees. It's not money. Although, see here again, this kind of skews it. If you were paid a phenomenal sum of money, I'm willing to bet a lot of people would suck it up and stay with their job, regardless of what perks might go along with it. I'm sure that if I told Will, Will, I am going to pay you $200,000 a year from now on until you retire. There is a very good chance that 
you will never leave CHML radio. Who would? If someone offered you two hundred grand to stay in your job, even if there were days, and I'm not saying this for Will, Will comes in here every day about as excited to be an employee of CHML as any human could be. But if there, even if there were days that were kind of stinky, if there were times when you go, ah, oh, I don't really, if for 200,000 bucks or more, sure, I'll stick around. But most people are not getting that kind of money. So what they're finding is workers are feeling, so it says, that they need to be made to feel important. They want to feel like they're appreciated, that their work matters. Now, maybe I'm a little old school, because to me, when I get my paycheck at the end of the week, that's my appreciation. If you give me a paycheck at the end of the week, that shows me that you appreciated my efforts. But not everyone feels the same way. And I grant you that I can understand to some degree. So what are people wanting to stick around these days in a business? What are people wanting to stay with their employer? And keeping one more thing in mind before I answer that question. If you hire someone, if I hire Will to be an operator here at CHML, I don't know how long exactly it takes to train Will to do this job until he's able to do it on his own without another staffer, till he is competent, and this is one job, you could do anything. But for a lot of people, it would be three months, six months, a year, depends. Depends how complicated the job is. But if you are having people who are leaving If 50% of people are staying only two years and a year of that is getting them competent enough to be fully trained, essentially, you're only getting them for one year, really. And you're investing that other time. So you want people to stick around. Well, here is what people are saying these days they want to stay with their employer. 88% say they want better health, dental, and vision insurance. All right, that costs a lot of money. For companies, it does, but okay. More flexible hours, 88%. By the way, 88%, I don't know if I said it, was the same for that insurance. 88%, more flexible hours. More vacation time, 80%. Work from home option, 80%. Here's one, unlimited vacation, 68%. Okay, we'll get to the other stuff in a second, but I'm trying to figure out now who are the people who are saying, if I go to a place that gives me full blanket in health insurance, flexible hours so I can work whenever I want, at home, and I can have unlimited vacation, who wouldn't work there? Where, where is that place? Because I want to sign up for that place. Because you want to know what I'll do? If I have unlimited vacation, you will never, ever, ever see me in the place. Just send me my paycheck, give me my insurance, I'm good. Anyway, here are, though, some companies, because some companies maybe don't do exactly that, but there are companies, big name companies, that are doing things to try to keep their employees. These are some of the companies that are doing interesting things, unique things, offering perks that will keep employees, they hope, in place. Google. What do you think Google gives? I mean, Google pays well, I assume. All those tech companies do, all the internet companies do. But what do you think Google does to keep employees? Because it's pretty competitive. Well, I'll tell you what they do. According to this, free gourmet meals for employees. That's a good start right off the bat. If you could say every day I'm going to go to work, I'm going to work over lunch and stick around till dinner time, and I get gourmet lunch and gourmet dinner every day. All right, that's a great start. In-house massages. So I'm going to have my steak and lobster tail 
Then I'm going to go lie down on the massage table and get oiled up and have someone give me a good rub down. <laughs> so far, this is sounding good to me, probably to nobody else. Dry cleaning on their campus. So after I've spilled all the food all over me and got oiled up and my clothes are all oily now, I can have them dry cleaned. Free haircuts and salon services on site. And get this one, nap pods. They have this special place where you can go in and they have soundproof, like a thing you can go into and it closes up and it's a pod where you can go and nap for a while. So just let me, let me explain to you what my day at Google would be. As I said, lunch and dinner followed by a massage with dry cleaning. And then I'm going to go have a nap. If I can get an hour work in there, that's fantastic. But there's my day right now. Uh, Surviving spouses or partners of deceased employees receive 50% of their salary for 10 years. It's pretty good too. Twitter. What does Twitter do for its staff? Three catered meals a day to their location, to their office. Again, not bad. On-site acupuncture. Again, I can see all the things up until now, I can see the somewhat corporate value of it, right? I mean, you've got people well-fed, they're happy. You allow people to have a nap or acupuncture to relax them where they can feel more creative. Okay, the dry cleaning on campus, they don't have to run out to the dry cleaner all the time, so that's less time to work. But we get to the next thing on Twitter, which this one I don't get at all. Improv classes. (laughs) I don't... So I'm sitting there working on Twitter stuff, and then I decide I want to be a stand-up comic or something, so I'm going to go do... Anyway, improv classes are offered. In-office yoga and Pilates classes. Laundry and dry cleaning again. Airbnb. How do you say that, Will? Is it Aaron? You tell me. I think it's... No, I don't know now I don't know anymore. I th- Airbnb? I thought it was right. that. Airbnb. Airbnb. Yes, you're right. Employees receive a $2,000 stipend to travel and stay in one of their places anywhere in the world. That's all right. Facebook. Parents of newborns who work for Facebook get $4,000 in baby cash, as well as four months maternity and paternity leave. Also, uh, internal professional development classes and, again, free meals, according to Forbes magazine. That's, again, that's pretty good. Four months paternity leave. All right, because... In the States, don't forget, they don't have the same maternity, paternity things as we do. So four months would be pretty good. Apple. Okay, here's, what, what do you expect? I mean, Apple, I expect with Apple that, honestly, there will be wedding cha- chapels. There will be all the other things that we've had before now. There will be champagne showers that I can bathe in. I don't. Okay, here's what they get. Discount on Apple products and stocks. All right, lots of people give discounts on their own product. Commuting reimbursement, mm -hmm. tuition assistance, and donation matching. So if you donate to a charity, they'll match your donation. They host, sometimes, concerts and beer bashes, has a wellness center with dietitians, chiropractors, and other medical professionals on site, which is pretty smart when you think of it, because how many people at your work say, I have a doctor's appointment, I can't come in today. Now, it's right there. You go see the doctor, and then you're done. Come back to work. Women who work for Apple according to Forbes, can receive fertility aid and, through Apple, have the opportunity to freeze their eggs. I don't know if that's an Apple service. I don't know if they bring in another company from outside. I don't know if, you know, that would be a little odd if your boss was also your egg freezer. By the way, when you file your report, can you also bring me your eggs and I'll freeze them for you? Just put them in the freezer. That, that I don't know. I'm assuming there's another company there. 
Ask. Now, I don't know what... Ask is a website company. I'm not very familiar with Ask, but here's one that you will love if you could work for Ask. They have an open vacation policy. That does not mean that you can take vacation whichever weeks you want and there's no worry about overlapping with someone because a lot of companies, you know, if the senior people get first choice and then others get in. Uh-uh. Employees are able to take as much time off as they wish. Think about that one for a second. How much vacation do I get? As much as you want. Wait a second. No, no. How many weeks? Any you want. So I can go off for 10 weeks a year of vacation, whatever you like. That that would be an enticement to stick around, I would think. Especially these days when time seems to be the new currency. You, I'm sure the people who work there work very hard. But if I could then say, you know what? Our family has booked a vacation. I've worked, you know, I've taken two weeks or three weeks off every year for the past five. Our family is taking a vacation. We're going for six weeks. Sure, no problem. That is pretty cool. Uh, DreamWorks. I'm a little disappointed in DreamWorks, to be honest, based on this. DreamWorks is the, isn't DreamWorks the Steven Spielberg, the Disney thing? Employees are treated to movie screenings and short movie festivals to reduce stress and inspire creativity. That's it? You show me some movies? Come on, go back to Apple. Go back to Ask. Uh, CIBC, according to Iluta, offers alternative work arrangements to promote a work-life balance among employees. They're able to design their own work schedules so it balances their needs. Hmm. And then uh, the Canadian National Railway Company and Ford Motor Company of Canada both offer generous tuition subsidies so you can improve your training. You can have up to 4,000 or with Ford, up to 6,400 in in-house apprenticeships and skilled trade programs. But I want to go back to that one. Will, how many weeks a year would you take if you had unlimited vacation that you could take and no one's going to ask questions? You show up and you go, Will, or Will says, I'm... I'm out of here. How long? How many weeks a year are you taking in vacation? This really reminds me of the type of deal the dude in Fight Club ended up with about halfway through the movie. If you, if someone has unlimited vacation time, okay, personally, I might come in just because I like work, but yeah, no, I, I do not expect anyone to show up. If they're getting paid for unlimited vacation, that's a dream job. That's a that's a genie's wish, you know? The only thing I wonder about this, and we got to go, the only thing I wonder about this is if this is like a trick. Because if you come in... And they hire you and you take no vacation. They're like, oh, this is the guy we want to have around. But then you've set the standard that you can't take vacation because you got to work so hard. But if you come in and say, I'm taking eight weeks a year, they're going to say, yeah, you know what? You're, you're not cut out for this company. So they've basically said to you, I'm guessing this is how it works. They've said to you, take all the time you want, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, but don't really take all that much time or else you're never going anywhere within our company, right? I mean, it it sounds terrific. I'd rather, honestly, as much as that sounds lovely, if some company was luring me, I would rather them say eight weeks. You take two months off a year and you know what? Not only two months, we insist you take two months. We will not let you in the door for those two months. See, that to me would be better than someone saying unlimited because you can't take unlimited. You really couldn't. Anyway, there's, there's what the world of business is doing these days to keep employees. What happened 40 years ago? Again, you got your paycheck, and that was a perk. That was a thank you. That was a, we appreciate you. Uh, times are changing. I will say, here at 900 CHML, where they have the in-house massages, and they have the three gourmet meals catered every day. Well, Will's looking at me like, we don't, you don't get that in your package? Oh, okay. Maybe that was just special to me. 
I finish every night at nine o'clock and walk out the door into the massage clinic. Not really. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, the CFL introduced Randy Ambrosi as the new boss of the league, taking over for Jeffrey Orridge, who, by most accounts, was, um, I don't know what the right word is, but we'll just get, oh, we'll go with that. Sort of an, I'm not sure. But. Randy Ambrosi now is in charge, and boy, he's got a few things on his plate. Joining me to talk about the new man, a guy who knows as much about this league as anyone else across this great land of ours, Rick Zamperin from right here in 900 CHML. Sir, how are you tonight? Scott, I am fantastic. How about yourself? I could not possibly be any better unless I still had a few hot dogs left over from last night's show because I'm a little peckish. (laughs) I heard about the uh, hot dog escapades. You'll have, you know what, next year you're going to have to stick around because the, the operators, Will last year, or Luke last year and Will this year, um, not really holding their own when it comes to eating the dogs. You, we're going to yeah. have to bring you, we've got a few other people who have said they want to take a crack at it. Maybe next year you want to be one of our competitors. Now, I understand that Will pounded Will did okay. five dogs last yep. night. Now, was that with buns? Oh, yes, dogs and buns. Okay, dogs and buns. So are we talking like full-fledged buns or kind of like those? Uh, you know those uh, uh, kind of like the sliced bread kind of hot dogs. Yeah, yeah. Bun. Oh, yeah. No, no. And it was and Will was as I said last night at the end of the show. Will was a pro because as it turned out, we had bought a, a few bags of buns when we prepared to do this. Some were those starchy, no nutritional value white things that just dissolve, and some were the <laughs> whole wheat like 12 grain buns that I tell you, wow. those things, one of those buns would have filled you up. He stuck with all the starchy white stuff. So he was a pro. Everyone else who had buns after, like, how did you eat five of these? Well, we didn't have the, you know, particle board buns that were on the other ones. So <laughs> let me, um, we'll get back to hot dogs. I mean, you know, if we were at a CFL game this year, you might get a hot dog. But uh, Randy Ambrosi might buy you a hot dog, Rick. I don't know. But uh, would you want this job, first of all? Would you want to be <sighs> commissioner of this league? You know, at, at this point in my career, I would say no. <laughs> I'm very comfortable and happy with what I'm doing. But, you know, I, I can see why many people would want this job because it comes with uh, a unique challenge, and that is trying to uh, – well, there's a few things. Number one, trying to resurrect a franchise just down the QEW that is uh, – you know, dormant is probably an understatement. Uh, you know, a franchise that is struggling to – find the next batch of fans uh, and those fans who have parents who are willing to take, you know, these newfound fans uh, to these football games. That's probably the first and foremost challenge in front of Randy Ambrosi. But in addition to that, uh, you know, the health of his players, and he mentioned this uh, yesterday, and this is going to be one of the key cogs, and I guess in, in his, uh, you know, platform, so to speak, over the next, uh, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months is, you know, the whole concussion issue, uh, the health of uh, the product on the field, because without those guys who are slugging it out, uh, you know, during the games and the practices, uh, going to community events, uh, I mean, those are basically your your bread and butter. Without those players, you know, this league's not going to accomplish anything. And I think number three, and this might be the toughest one, and maybe you know, the one dragon that uh, will be impossible to slay, and that is the National Football League. And and I know there has been talk over the last. Well, decades really of uh, you know landing or, or creating a NFL team in Toronto, and that has played a part in uh, you know the the uh, the shine off the Argos uh, kind of glare. But 
you know, to, to slay the NFL uh, and get NFL fans to become hardcore CFL fans, I think is a monumental task. And I think it's one that he has to try. Uh, I'm just not sure how he's going to go about doing that. I have made a number of notes of what you just said. We're going to go work through some of these things. But before I get to those ones, one other one. What was your, I, I described the tenure of his predecessor, Jeffrey Orge, as a, uh, I'm not really sure. How, I mean, you don't have to use the same sound effect, but how, how do you describe the Jeffrey Orge era of the CFL? Well, the, the sound effect that you're using is quite accurate. But, uh, you know, in my blog the other day, I... How did you spell I, it? Well, the one word that I used, <laughs> the one word, there's a lot of consonants in there. I think it's the Polish origin. Uh, it's going to be the one word that the spelling be, you know, next year that nobody's going to be able to spell. But uh, the one word that I came up with was underwhelming. I mean, here was a guy who had a fantastic pedigree in terms of, uh, you know, being a star executive with CBC Sports and did some great things. Uh, and, you know, I, I think had a vision to, to grow the game, although I don't think any of us saw it materialize. Uh, you know, his really undoing was, you know, last year at the State of the League address, uh, basically refusing to admit that there's any possible link between football and CTE, uh, the degenerative uh, brain disease. And I think that really, I mean, with, with all the science, and I know there's, you know, some debate back and forth, but uh, with all the evidence, with all the stories, I mean, they made a movie out of it. They've written books about this. Uh, with all that uh, surrounding this issue, to, to simply outright refuse to, uh, you know, accept a link between the two, I think was foolish. Uh, and I think that really was probably the last nail in, in his coffin, so to speak. But Yeah, I wondered again, about that. If that answer was his doom, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, the, the, the refurbished logo, I think, fell flat. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think, obviously, you know, when you look across the league, yeah, the, you know, a bunch of teams have new stadiums. A lot of those plans or stadiums were already in effect even before he came in office. But just in terms of, you know, the Argos moving to BMO Field, and, and really that didn't materialize in a lot of excitement and, and butts in seats. And I think just there, there wasn't a vision to improve that situation. And I think, you know, the Board of Governors and the owners across the CFL were looking at Origin thinking, uh, you know, we uh, we brought him in with much fanfare, but nothing really has, has happened at all. So I think they really had to, you know, pull the chute and get someone new. And, and a guy like Randy Ambrosi, who played the game, knows the game, uh, didn't outright come out and, and, and refuse to link CTE to football, but also said that, you know, uh, he's not a scientist. Uh, there are some, uh, you know, issues on both sides uh, of this equation. So we'll let, you know, smarter people kind of decide that. I think it was, you know, a political stance, which I expected Orge to take, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, he did not. Yeah, I thought it was, quite honestly, I thought it was a dodge, but I thought there was no real other answer he yeah. could give. Yeah, exactly. I, I yeah. don't know what else he could have said. He's, he's not going to come out and say, I've just joined a sport again or returned to a sport that's killing people. There's no way he's going to say something like that, and and we don't know if it's that significant, but he's also, I think, smart enough not to say what Jeffrey Orridge said, which was, there's nothing there. Exactly. And, you know, the only other thing he could have said is, you know, we, and, and, you know, he was alluding to this, too, is, you know, we take the health of our players seriously. Uh, you know, if, if, there is, if, if there is any sort of link, we want to, you know, make sure that our players are going to try to avoid that, and we're taking steps to ensure that, you know, their safety is paramount, something along those lines. And, and and I believe him because, you know, as a former player, he, you know, he was in the trenches. He knows, uh, you know, how violent of a game this is and how, I mean, he saw it every day on the, on the practice field and in the locker room. Guys are really hurting, uh, and especially after their playing days, you can see that really come to the fore. Let me go through some of the things you said right off the bat of his challenges. We start with Toronto because I think that's the first one, the last one, the middle one. It's the overriding thing in this league right now. 
my thought was, is it the commissioner's job to fix Toronto though? Because I, I'm, the longer I think about it, I'm not sure if, is it his job or is it someone else's job to try and get that place turned around for the CFL? Well, I think first and foremost, it is the Argos ownership and, and Larry Tannenbaum and, and, you know, the Bell Media Group. But, you know, when you are the commissioner, I mean, you are really the, the face of the league. And, you know, you, know, you look across the league and, and you'll probably say, well, you know, Zach Caleros is the face of the league and, uh, you know, Darian Durant is. And, you know, you, you pick your star player here, there and everywhere. And that's, you know, the face of the franchise is the face of the league. Those are the faces that the league is marketing and promoting. At the end of the day, the commissioner's job is to uh, not only maintain but grow the game and in order to do that you need at this point nine healthy franchises and they basically have eight of them right now uh that one just down the highway is just not pulling its weight so uh, i think he has to come up with a strategy in conjunction with argo's ownership in conjunction with the board of directors uh you know get input from the other owners to see you know what kind of challenges they had faced are there any similarities what can be done uh you know what best practices can be utilized in toronto uh, and maybe there obviously is some out-of-the-box thinking that they can do, whether it is, you know, social media or new media or something new. They, they, at the end of the day, they have to engage those younger fans because they're looking to other sports. They're looking to football south of the border, which is a marketing monster uh, and, and a monolith to, to climb. Uh, you know, the CFL at this point is just not going to, is not is not capable of, of competing on a marketing platform the same as the nfl heck they have their own channel in the national football league and and you know the cfl just can't compete with that kind of publicity and marketing so i think he is ultimately uh, does have a hand in, in trying to improve what's happening in toronto uh, it's not an easy answer it's not going to happen overnight it's certainly not going to happen within the next season two or maybe even five but uh, you know, they got to try some different things and see what uh, what sticks and what doesn't. Rick, when was the last time that the Argos were truly, I don't mean had a blip, were truly relevant in Toronto? Well, and, and I can think of it clearly. What was the, in your mind, what was the last time that everybody in Toronto was aware and kind of, at least kind of, watching the Argos? I would say without a doubt, without a doubt, it was the Wayne Gretzky, yes, John Candy, exactly. Rocket, Rocket Ishmael. I mean, and, the, Doug, the Doug Footy years were tremendous. Sure. But I think in terms of popularity and, hey, I know that team, or, yeah, I, I've, uh, you know, I know John Candy. Yeah, he owns the Argos. Let's go check out a game. I think that kind of publicity and marketing is really what this team needs. And whether you need another you know, all-star owner or player or whatever the case is, I mean, they need something really to galvanize not only that city, but really the country to say, hey, what's happening in Toronto with this Argonauts team? But that team had the one thing that I really believe would work in Toronto, and it's got nothing to do with the commissioner. It's got very little to do with the ownership. They had star power that people beyond the diehard football fans would be interested in. Mm-hmm. And that was with Rocket Ishmael, that the sports fans knew who Rocket Ishmael was. And so you went, oh, he's a big-time big star. He's on our team. But for the others, it was the they bring in the Blues Brothers, or they had John Candy at field. Seems to me that the Hamilton Tiger Cats have about 17 quarterbacks on their neg list, all who are big-name American players. Somehow, whether or not Johnny Manziel or Colin Kaepernick. Listen, I'm not arguing that they can play the game in Canada. I'm not making that case because a lot of people are saying, no, that's an idiotic idea. But I'm saying they have the star power, at least the name brand, that people might come out and take a look at them at least if somehow Toronto could get their hands on one and convince them to come up here. I'm not arguing they're going to be a good player even. They might be a terrible player, but you need something to get the attention of Torontonians. 
you know, I, uh, there's one thing that you said that I, I think I'd, I'd probably disagree with is that, you know, Farrakh Ishmael came up here and he was a flop. I'm not sure that that season, at least, I mean, they went on to win the Great Cup, but I'm not sure if that season uh, or even that, um, uh, you know, group of fans who kind of fell in love with uh, the team or the sport would have stayed on Maybe. as long as they did. You know Maybe. what I mean? Like, he, he could have came up here and had, you know, a couple of good games and then faded, a la Ricky Williams a few seasons ago, and really wouldn't it would have been a blip on the radar. But, I mean, you had a great player in Ishmael uh, who performed well. Matt Dunnigan had a fantastic season that year. But not only that, you know, John Candy from the entertainment world, Wayne Gretzky, the you know, mm. superstar of another, of another sport, Bruce McNall, this, you know, brash kind of outgoing billionaire who was, you know, spending frivolously. And we all know how that uh, story ended. But you had so many different kind of avenues and, and people from different platforms uh, who were, you know, uh, amongst the best in their particular field come to one franchise and, uh, uh, it just exploded into you know a, a glorious time for for Argonauts football. You may be you may be completely right, and and the truth is that if those guys came up here and they were truly awful, I don't doubt that you would be a hundred percent correct. I'm I'm just trying to think. There's got Toronto to me for the CFL seems to be for anything seems to be a place where you need some sort of star power to stand out, and yeah, yeah. or or you need to be so entertaining. Uh, you know, I don't know that TFC, I don't know if the, the soccer team in Toronto is loaded with star power. They have good players. They have some named guys. They don't have Pele playing for them. Um, but they're a good enough team and they're entertaining enough now. And the audience, I mean, frankly, for a lot of people, it's just the experience of being in that crowd and being with that environment. But it just seems Toronto's got to find some way to make it seem like a big deal. Mm-hmm. I would say the one thing for TFC, and you know, I was, I was at a game just a couple of weeks ago, and you know, the atmosphere is just... Uh, you know, it's 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 unbelievable. It's like a different atmosphere. Well, it is a different atmosphere between the TFC game mm. and an Argos game. I mean, half the half the stadium is empty for an Argos game. But the thing with Toronto FC, and this was a this was a franchise that was just an abomination for for the better part of a decade. Their first ten years, they did not they never made the playoffs. Uh, and then they started putting you know the pieces together in terms of the front office with Tim Lywicki making some good moves. Uh, you know, getting some new management in there, getting a new coach in there, and Greg Danny. And not only that, but finally getting some star power on the field, whether it's, you know, Bradley or Altidore or Jovinko. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, right now, they have the best team in the MLS. And I think for TFC, I think it's the sexy play right now in Toronto. You know, the, the Blue Jays have their fan base. The Leafs certainly have their fan base. Uh, the Raptors have theirs as well. But Toronto FC right now, at this point, is the the sexy attraction. Hey, let's go see this Jovinko. Let's go see this team that's tearing up the MLS. Let's go see this team that almost won the MLS Cup last year, uh, save for a penalty shootout. So I think right now they are riding the wave. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, 10 years from now, what kind of impact and what kind of following Toronto FC has. See, I would believe, and I truly, I, I actually, I absolutely do believe this. I think that 50% at least, and probably closer to 70% of the people going to TFC games are going to the game not even to watch the soccer. They want to be part of that environment because it's right. fun to be in that crowd. And if there's a soccer game going on, all the better. But we're there because we want to jump around and sing. It's like going to a, a Premier League game in, in England. You want to be part of that experience. And as long as the team can remain competitive, People will continue to come, and the crowd will be there. And if the crowd is there, the environment will be there, and that'll yeah. work. And the one advantage that TFC and, and really the MLS in North America has is that at this time of the year, I mean, no other 
soccer that you're probably interested in is happening right now. Uh, you know, the Premier League in, in England, City A in Italy, the Bundesliga in, in, in Germany, all the major European soccer campaigns, seasons, uh, don't begin for at least another few weeks. So Toronto FC really has a good buffer in terms of, you know, uh, attracting their fans and then keeping some of the fans because they are entertaining on the field. Um, uh, whereas with the Argos, I mean, if you're a football fan, yeah, you're going to go to an Argos game, but you also have in town Toronto FC and the Blue Jays who are playing, uh, you know, just down the road too. So, uh, you know, the market is really, uh, you know, that's a, that's a long and high ladder to climb for the mm. Argos to get back to, to relevance in that city. One more thing, and we have one minute left here. Um the other thing that is a real, seemingly a real challenge for Randy Ambrosi is this is a league that we know, we hear, we've seen evidence of, the fan base is an older fan base. And it is a challenge to somehow get younger and younger people to lock into this. How do you do that? Uh, I think it, it, it begins and ends with the product on the field. There's no doubt about it. You know, you look at the National Football League, and it is a sensational product, and I know a lot of CFL fans are kind of cringing in their seats or by their radios when I say that, but it is. I mean, you have 30 teams. You have uh, massive star power from coast to coast, uh, you know, mega cities in New York and L.A. and, 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 and Dallas, uh, and you have, you know, brash owners. Uh, you have all the hype. Uh, you have the NFL Network. You just have uh, something, you're selling something that people are automatically buying. It's almost like Apple. We have an iPhone. Oh, I want to buy that. Uh, you know, we're the NFL. Oh, you know, give me some more of that. The CFL is doing some good things in terms of fantasy football. I think they're getting more entwined with that. That's going to play to a younger audience. Not, not to say that 40 and 50 year olds don't play fantasy football, but that really, you know, is geared to a younger audience. Being on social media, being in that new media realm, being on the cusp of, you know, what's next technology-wise, I think is important for the league. But, man, if they don't grab younger fans, um, uh, th- you know, they're obviously not going to grow. I mean, that, that's going to be one of the tallest tasks for this commissioner and this league to do in the next, you know, five to ten years. Rick Zamperin, always on his game. Thank you, sir, for doing this. Appreciate it. Anytime. Have a good one. That is, um, that is a, that the new commissioner, man, he does have a lot on his plate. I will grant you that. He, um, it is not going to be an easy job. I, I don't know if he can do it. I don't, honestly, I don't know who could do it. We'll see if he is up to it. And I don't think that if he doesn't do everything, I don't think you can say he's a failure. There have been a lot of smart guys that have come along before him who have not been able to make magic. But there's a lot of magic needed. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.